According to researchers, the largest random sex survey ever conducted reported that only 1.4% of adults engaged in homosexual behavior. That was from 2003. Let's fast forward 20 years in Canada because I'm coming from Canada, so we'll maintain with Canada's statistics. Right now, that same age bracket, late teens, early 20s, it's not 2% anymore. It's 22%. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sister Veronica, to uh, give you some background as to LifeSite's great interest here in Africa, it is because in Canada and the United States and Europe, where we normally are, the faith is lost. The family is lost. Life is lost. And we need somewhere on earth for it still to exist, for the sake of our children, for the sake of the whole world. And the place where it exists today, most strongly, is here in Africa. It's been an incredible thing for me to come earlier this year uh, to Africa and uh, see the great faith here, see the strength of the church here, because it is the voices of our spiritual fathers, the bishops, that carry this truth forward and sustain it in the world. In many of our countries, we began down the slope to an anti-family stance in our governments because our bishops refused to speak. Welcome to LifeSite League. What are we? We are change. We are relentless. We are a voice for the voiceless. We are prayer warriors. We are journalists. We are activists. As citizen journalists, we, members of LifeSite League, contribute stories to LifeSite News from across the world. Christ is calling you. He is calling every single one of us to fight. To fight for truth and stand on the front lines with our greatest weapon in our hand, the Rosary. The world we are living in is encompassed by evil. It is mocking God, killing babies in the womb, and burning down our churches. And what are so many of us doing? We are standing by in silence. Or worse, we are compromising and joining the devil's army out of convenience. But not anymore. LifeSite News brings to you the League. We stand on the side of Christ. We stand for truth and are ready to transform the culture we are living in. There is no time to waste. There is no time for weakness. Join the fight for truth now Join LifeSite League. The situation is so strange, so unbelievable, but as soon as you head down this direction, this is where you get. I've got a chart here. It compares a study on homosexuality in Canada from 2003 
and then I've compared it to 2023. And you might think this is impossible. I encourage you to go and look up the study. They're both on LifeSite. But according to researchers, the largest random sex survey ever conducted reported that only 1.4% of adults engaged in homosexual behavior. That was from 2003. So that you have, this is from the Canadian Community Survey, 121,300 adults. So it's a very good survey of many, many. And you get to basically 1.4%. And when they break it down, young Canadians between in their late teens and 20s and 30s and so on were about 2%. This is 2003. Let's fast forward 20 years in Canada because I'm coming from Canada, so we'll maintain with Canada's statistics. Right now, that same age bracket, late teens, early 20s, it's not 2% anymore. It's 22%. And it's reflected in the United States as well. In the United States, they just did a study earlier this year. One in four high school students identify as one of the alphabet letters, LGBT, et cetera, et cetera. We are in an absolute crisis that is growing by the day. And the policies of the government have turned against the church, have turned against those who are at all faithful. So you have in the United States, the government, the FBI, the, the arm of government for um, policing has turned on innocent Catholics. There are Catholic families who are being sought after by the FBI, hunted down. They are, their homes are being come to with FBI agents, guns drawn to confront them and their families. And it's not just one, it's several families. Why? Because they were pro-life activists. Not violent pro-life activists, just the kind that go outside the, the abortuaries and pray. And yet they're targeted by the Federal Bureau of Investigations in the United States under an administration by a guy who calls himself a Catholic. So that's the state of the war on life and family inside Canada, inside Europe, and the United States. And we've come here to show you how we lost this war in our countries so that the faith can have one place where it still stays, so that the life and family teachings of Jesus Christ can be maintained in one land, because there is no other. I will tell you our perspective on these issues. I want to go over what we're going to be talking about uh, this evening. I've already talked about the startling increase in LGBT in America and Europe, especially in children. You know what's happening with children. Children from very young ages are being given irreversible treatments that will harm them forever because their parents deem them trans from the time they're two years old. And there's actual doctors and hospitals that are very well-to-do that suggest they will go and give these treatments. They're irreversible treatments, but they say, oh, it's, it's no problem, it's, holding on. it's not holding onto anything. And so we have that horror happening right now. We have men in women's change rooms, 
we have men in women's sports. We have men in women's prisons. You'd think a movement that calls itself feminist would have said, no, you can't do that. But no, the feminist movement has proved they were never for women by allowing and encouraging this insanity. We also have a continuation of abortion and contraception, but all of it actually comes back to the need for our bishops to speak out. And that was the first shoe that dropped in Canada, in America, and Europe. The bishops were silent. And that is the death knell to the movements for life and family. So I want to give you our perspective because it's the, what I've said is already quite startling with regard to where the society is at. But our perspective has always been a perspective of love. It's not about hatred and bigotry. Most of the West, most of these countries now point to Africa. They just want to kill the gays. And it's a complete, utter, total lie, but they say it anyway. They say it of all of the pro-life, pro-family activists in Canada and Europe as well. But our position has always been one of love. Because we love our brothers and sisters who are tempted into the sin of homosexuality enough to tell them, we love them enough to tell them, this behavior harms you, it harms your body, it harms your mind, and it harms your soul. And we're all Catholics and Christians and we believe in an everlasting life and you're threatening your eternal salvation, there's no way I want to see you not making heaven. So even though they're going to call me a hater and a bigot, even though that they might come after me with the FBI, I'm willing and ready to speak for you because I love you. And then they might say, oh, come on, harming. Harming what? Well, the harms are very obvious. The harms, if you look on LifeSite News, you can see all the studies of all the harms to the body that are here. We've, we've got doctors here, medical doctors here who are able to speak to that as well. I want you to take the word of a Canadian homosexual activist. This guy's name was Jens Helquist. He was a campaigner for the LGBT movement. In 2005, we got same-sex marriage in Canada, one of the first countries on earth to allow same-sex marriage. Four years later, in 2009, Jens Helquist went to the government begging for money for the homosexual community. And here's why he said he needed it. He said, and these are his words, his words to government, and listen very carefully, because these words from this homosexual activist tell clearly the damage that homosexuality does to them. He said, we have one of the poorest health statuses in this country, and he's talking about the homosexual community. Health issues affecting queer Canadians, that's homosexual Canadians, include lower life expectancy than the average Canadian, suicide, higher rates of substance abuse, depression, inadequate access to care, and HIV AIDS. He said, there are all kinds of health issues that are endemic to our community, only for that LGBT community. And he says, we have higher rates of anal cancer in the gay male community. Lesbians have higher rates of breast cancer. And these were his concluding words, asking for money from the government. He said, now that we can get married, remember, they got the marriage four years before that. 
Now that we can get married, everyone assumes that we don't have any issues anymore. A lot of the deaths that occur in our community are hidden. We don't see them. But those who are working on the front lines see them, and I'm tired of watching my community die. Even if you don't believe the studies, the doctors, and the testimonies, you must believe the testimony of this LGBT activist who laid out clearly the harm that this lifestyle causes. And therefore, those who fight for family, those who fight for life, love our brothers and sisters who are tempted into homosexuality much more than those who say, oh, go ahead, go ahead, wonderful, ooh, hooray, hooray. That in the Bible is called hatred. Any parent who allows their children to do something that's going to kill them or harm them is not loving that child. We must love our brothers and sisters who are tempted to the sin of homosexuality that's endangering, endangering their bodies, their minds, and their souls. And we must be willing to sacrifice in order to love them enough to tell them that this is harmful. With that, I am going to pass over to the reason why life sites in Africa in the first place. You see, we had a very great pro-life activist in Canada whose name was Dr. John Shea and who I sat around a table like this with for many years. And he's a great supporter. He's now passed away. But he had a son who I didn't know until very recently. And his son uh, was a supporter of LifeSite. He was a Canadian diplomat. He was then after that a businessman who was in China and all over the world. And then came to Africa. He's got a great heart for Africa. And he combined those two loves of Africa and LifeSite and approached us and said, I think we can do work in Africa with LifeSite. And so we've had a very happy relationship now for a while. And uh, Greg Shea, a uh, good friend of mine, and someone who I am honored to work with, will give us our introductions. Thank you very much, John Henry. And it's a real pleasure and honor to be here amongst such inspiring witnesses to Jesus Christ and his mission, which is to stand for dignity, for human dignity, and to love and to serve and to be channels and instruments of peace in this world. It's really an honor. And all of you you've gathered here from different parts, and different backgrounds, they're all complementary part of a fabric, a fabric of life and love of life and love of God. Um, you've heard enough about me. I can say a few words about this gentleman over here too, which I found out in the last little while. Um, he's a father of eight, and actually a father of 11, because unfortunately three of them were not able to come to full term, that's something, right? In Africa, that's not a big deal, maybe, but. <laughs> and uh, he co-founded um, the LifeSite News 26 years ago, and it was based on a movement that, that my father had been involved in, as you mentioned, and many others, that was, uh, it goes back actually 50 years, I think, right? The, the, the precursor campaign life, campaign life yeah. Uh, so that's five decades of experience that we hopefully can share with you. Um, and I also learned that not only did he attend the most famous uh, choir school in Canada, St. Michael's Choir School, but he actually remembers it, because when we're at Mass, he sings so beautifully. <laughs> and I'm sure that uh, everyone's benefiting from that, too. Um, I think, though, that I would hand over to uh, Tobias 
um, who, who could then set the context for this. And then we can start with our speakers. We have a series of panelists here who, again, are drawn from different but complementary um, parts of the community. And uh, so I'd ask uh, Tobias, that, I think that's the plan, right? That you would have a chance to, uh, to set the context for the TV viewers here. Thank you so much. Uh, dear viewers, we are here at uh, uh, Strathmore School of Business. Uh, Kabchin TV, in collaboration with LiveSide News, is hosting the first ever Africa Live Forum, where professionals from all angles are seated here to give the green light on what's happening in the entire continent of Africa, the perspective of Kenya. Uh, just to introduce why uh, this forum is hosted in Strathmore University School of Business, we all understand that the dynamics in the continent today have changed. Life, the culture, the family settings, and the dedicated faithfuls from different angles of the religious groups have also changed. And the Africa Life Forum aims to serve as a catalyst of dialogue from the different professionals here, a collaborational move, and an action to bring together individuals, communities, the youth, women, families from different contexts, the elderly as well, different organizations, institutions, and even governments to stand together and continue defending protecting and pro promoting the dignity of the family, life, and also faith. At this context, we look forward to achieve the following. One, to continue bringing together professionals, media, stakeholders, especially members of the Christian faith, academicians from different institutions, researchers, and activists, to be able to continue defending the faith in Africa, protect the culture of life, sovereignty of the continent, and the dignity of the region. Number two, we look forward to facilitate the conversations and promote the understanding and respect for faith, cultural practices, and traditional family structures in the continent. Number three, we also look forward to identify, analyze, and the unique challenges that the African continent is facing with the regards to faith within communities at individual level and families across the region. Second last, we also look forward to discuss and explore opportunities for collaboration, empowerment, and positive development in the realms of faith, life, and family. And then lastly, we look forward to develop an actionable solution and strategies to address these challenges that the many faithfuls both in the Catholic faith and other Christian religious denominations, communities and families in the entire continent from south to the north, east and west. So welcome dear viewers, enjoy, ask questions by sending a text through the Caption TV contact or on YouTube, those comments will be picked and during the sessions, we'll be glad to share the responses. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you very much. So I suppose that the next step is to, uh, to go to our first speaker. 
And um, I think we, we have a, a way of doing this in the West where we, we, we call it going around the horn. So <laughs> maybe we can start uh, with a um, speaker to my immediate left, who is a, a host in a way of this event because you're with the Strathmore University. And I think it would be wonderful if we could hear from you. But first of all, I'll say a, a brief version of a very extensive uh, CV, curriculum vitae. It's quite impressive. Uh, uh, Raymond Makura is the director of the Center of Research of Organizations, Work, and Family, um, and assistant for the executive dean at Strathmore University Business School, which is our host today. Um, and he is also the academic director of the Family Business Executive Program. Um, so he's a very busy man. Um, he is uh, doing a PhD at Nelson Mandela University on uh, digital innovation uh, adoption framework for Kenyan family-owned micro, small, and medium enterprises. Very interesting, right? Applying technology to build the family from the grassroots up. Um, he has a master's in applied philosophy and ethics from this university. Uh, the thesis is on, uh, is the family a principle of the nation? Examined from an Aristotelian perspective. So there you go. Um, he has a master's in IT from Australia, a postgraduate diploma in uh, marriage and education and family from uh, Catalonia, Spain. And where have you not studied? <laughs> so, you, you cannot. <laughs> no, well, that's to come. That's to come. Um, you're involved in technical working groups as well with the Ministry of Labor and Social Protection, um, the technical working group for the development of the draft national policy on family promotion and protection. This is the real work. Um, but I saved the best for last. Raymond is the father of four lovely children. Congratulations. Thank you. Please. Well, first is to welcome the LifeSite team here. Um, we're very gracious to host this first African forum. Um, yeah, and uh, of course to also be part of the panel of distinguished people I've worked with in this journey on family. Uh, Senior Counsel Tanjama, uh, Alice representing uh, her connections with Parliament and uh, very vocal for LIFA and other uh, distinguished, and of course, Dr. Wahome, we sit in the same committee in the Act Diocese. Yeah. So, so I think the, do you want me to make my remarks on, on, yeah. And then we would have a time for one or two yeah. questions after each of yeah. the interventions. Huh? Okay. Yeah. So I think the, the I mean, this is, this is very good. Um, we started our journey on pro-life. I started as a young person in uh, 1990, 1996, 1997 there, when we set up True Love Weights. And our idea was to try and set up True Love Weights clubs across schools, um, so my colleague David, he's now passed, David Otero, very passionate young man, um, introduced me to these ideas. And at that time, I thought it was very obvious to everyone that it would be good to remain uh, chaste before marriage. Um, but after a few years, I realized that there is a bit of a battle <laughs> of people who don't agree 
to the obvious. Yeah. So, and uh, I think that journey eventually took me to a number of things. One of them is to try and work at a policy level to try and understand what goes on from a policy perspective, the policy system that is sometimes coordinated, funded by other NGOs, coordinated through the UN system. Eventually, this comes through as laws in our country. So, and uh, at that time, I met a Canadian, um, Anna Halfine, the founder of World Youth Alliance in the year in the 2000s. And she helps me to understand what goes on, yeah? the system and you know how to coordinate things. Uh, and out of that, we've been working with the World Youth Alliance at the point of sitting the World Youth Alliance board to try and see how we can work with the youth to get them to really talk about their real issues in their country, the real problems, as opposed to what is being proposed to them as the problems and as the solutions. So I'm very happy that, you know, the, our connection and our work with World Youth Alliance has well, it's gone through all the five continents now. And there's a very big uh, World Youth Alliance uh, group here. Then I moved, I got married in 2001 and got into family. Then again, I thought that people in family uh, have all the tools and all the ideas on what they need to do. And then realized that even if we have a very rich African culture uh, on very key things about family and the strength to, you know, eventually be family people, the need for taking care of children, there were still challenges around getting, you know, new knowledge on what to do. Yeah, so for a long time now, I've been involved with the International Federation for Family Development. It's another international NGO. Uh, and we have set up uh, programs for marriage, parenting within our business school and within the ecosystem. In At least for so far in Nairobi, we haven't managed to reach out to all the places out of Nairobi. Other than periodically, we've begun having engagements with schools to you know, engage them on what their parents need to do, what they need to do, uh, what the school needs to do to promote this. But the climax of all the work uh, has been the development of the national policy that we began in 2014, uh, a journey that uh, we have participated with many people in this room. Um, and I, to tell you the truth, I, I actually never knew we would ever get here because there are all sorts of things, um, all sorts of hurdles that we've gone, we've gone through in trying to suggest something that is very obvious. Yeah? Our constitution in Kenya clearly spells out in Article 45 that the family is a fundamental unit of society and the state actually should protect that idea and that there should be an enactment of laws and policies that support that idea. So I thought, again, that was very obvious <laughs> and that it will not take us nine years to get a policy you know, pulled through. We've had back and forth. We've had it go to cabinet. We are, it was returned. We have to fix this, fix the other, engage this, engage the other. But finally, this year on October 2nd, 2023, the, family, the National Policy on Family Promotion and Protection was approved by cabinet. Amen. Um, so we kind of have... Uh, a government node <laughs> to implement uh, many of the aspirations of the family that, again, are articulated very clearly in our constitution. It's, we're not making it up. It's not something we cooked or the church cooked or anyone cooked. It's the people of Kenya. The people of Kenya voted for this constitution 
uh, and uh, you know it, it was given a vote people had to say yes or no to the constitution and among the things that the majority of Kenyans said is that article 45 is what we want we want the family to be protected so I'm looking forward to its implementation and I'm hoping through the collaboration of the people here collaboration of by the way the national family policy was a, a project of almost everyone because if you talk about the Hindus, they were there. If you talk about the Muslims, they were there. If you talk about the Protestants, they were there. If you talk about the Christians, they were there. If you talk about civil society, they were there. This document that has taken nine years, nine is always a special number. Yeah, it's a, it represents the Holy Spirit. I mean, the God, the, the Trinity in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a good number. <laughs> what we've done for nine years has been the work of all the Kenyans. And, uh, for those who may be doubting, this is the product of Kenyans. So I'm very glad and I'm very happy to receive the support uh, that you have from your countries on other ways to be able to promote life. Thank you very much. We were originally thinking of doing a Q&A after each speaker, but I think in the interest of time, maybe I could ask the same question to each speaker. What, knowing that we're here to compare notes and think about how to best defend and promote life and family in the Kenyan and African context. Um, what do you see as the greatest challenge and perhaps in addition opportunity uh, from your own experience uh, to achieve that goal? So I'd ask you first. Yeah. Okay. What is a great, I think there is a kind of a wave and mm -hmm. I don't know whether the wave is being promoted or propagated by technology. There's a kind of a wave that is attacking the obvious. And uh, unfortunately, the young people, I don't know what has changed with the young people, that they are ready to test anything else that is looking different. So uh, I know I have spoken to many of the parents and I tell them that, look, we have to be aware that one of our greatest threats in you know, parenting and marriage is this new animal called technology. Mm -hmm. And you see, when you look at it, at some of us who are in technology, you know, it's, it starts very, you know, it's not very harmful. It doesn't look very harmful. But without, be, without putting one's energy into thinking about its repercussion, mm -hmm. um, one can find that actually any other extra time that they have there on, on some WhatsApp, it could be as, you know, as it's not harmful to be in WhatsApp. But the habits that one can form out of being almost slave to technology are beginning to be a big threat. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the biggest threat, to be aware that unlike the days we began in 2000, where sources of information were very clear, sources of information now are from all over, and they, you know, they can spread like wildfire. In Kenya, we have a big... Uh, a big social media following and all thoughts and ideas and the you know the public opinion unfortunately these days can come out of um, the uh, social media so so we we kind of have to be aware of that uh, and then what are the opportunities and the opportunities thank god where we are at we have a big civil society. We have a good network of people who have been thinking the same, but not necessarily on the same faith. Mm -hmm. 
I know, as I've said in the working committee, in the family, we've sat, I've sat with the Hindus, the Muslim, everyone. Mm. And uh, within the church and within the development of a parenting manual that we did, I have sat with other people who have different products and ideas on what they have been doing in their churches. Mm -hmm. We kind of have a big network of people who are thinking together. Mm. And we are the majority. That's a yeah. So the issue is to see how we can now implement some of these things that we have come, some of these tools we've come up with, the policy and these networks. So and we, have aware, a, we have a great the, opportunity. Where technology is a friend and a foe, we have to work it kind of yeah. correctly. Yeah. Okay. Um, why don't you go on to all the other speakers and ask them the same question? I think yeah. that would be good. And then we'll okay. continue that one. Well, to your immediate left is our, our dear sister, the doctor. Uh, it's like in Germany, hair doctor, doctor, professor, you know, so, so uh, capable. Um, uh, Sister Dr. Veronica Roth, uh, who is senior lecturer at uh, Catholic University of East Africa, Center for Social Justice and Ethics. Sister is a moral theologian and an ethicist and a counselor, as well as a corresponding member of PAD in the Vatican, you know, the Pontifical Academy. Does that mean you're in that position for life? <laughs> <laughs> Writers, uh, she writes and offers letters and seminars, lectures and seminars on African Christian family and social issues. Dear sister. Thank you. I want to thank you, especially in the life site and all the panelists who are here for this opportunity to give my sight as a religious woman. Like the gospel, the Samaritan woman, when she met Jesus and she went back to her community. And after some time, the people said, we don't believe because of what you told us, but we have experienced by ourselves. So in Africa, I want to thank the missionaries who came and brought the faith, introduced Jesus to us. And after some time, it was not easy for the African people to embrace uh, either those who want to join priesthood or if you wanted to be a sister, a brother, the idea was no. The reason was Africans believe that every person is they have to marry and get children. So the idea of not marrying was kind of foreign and unless for religious purposes there was that idea. But now the church in Africa has embraced Christianity. They have embraced the Catholic faith. And you find now many families, many churches. We have uh, priests, sisters, uh, brothers. And there is vocations, uh, you could say this boom of vocations in Africa. Mm -hmm. So that is the situation where we are. And it gives us now as indigenous uh, people from Africa, as Pope uh, 
Paul said that Africa, to reach a time that Africans will evangelize themselves. And this is the position where we are. We are now getting back to our people to share the mission of Jesus Christ. And our role as religious persons is apart from prayer, which we pray for the family, the society, the nation, and everything that is in the world, that is our life as religious persons. But it's also to share our charisms. We have different gifts from the Holy Spirit through different founders, founders of the congregations. And I will take part to participate in the mission of the church. And in that mission of the church is really to teach about the dignity of the human person. And this also corresponds to what African people believed. We believed in life and we believe that every person has a dignity. When he's brought from the cost, from the Jesus perspective, from the Christian perspective, it is something that our people easily appreciate and it resonates with them and they, they find home at that. So the dignity of the human person, the dignity of marriage and family, the place of marriage and family in society is something that is a place that is respected. It really holds everything. Family is at the center of life. So when we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and teach them about the family, at what Jesus say, what the church teaches about marriage and family, our people understand and really they, they find it easy to appreciate and accept the gospel. So our role as religious men and women and also priests is to teach and we find our people when we meet them, when we teach them during, when we teach catechisms, maybe in the parishes, we work in pastoral, also in education, institutions of learning in our schools. You find sisters, we take part, a, lot, a number of schools in Kenya are run by the religious and especially the sisters. And it gives us an opportunity to teach what the church says about family. And at the same time, being Africans, we are able to understand and know what does the church teach, what does the African people hold and value. And there are some of the things which may not agree and we are able to tell the people in a way that they come to understand. But from the African perspective, some of the values or challenges, we can call challenges, which does not agree with the gospel, it was for them for life. It was like we practice Many people practice polygamy. It was not just the issue of having many wives, but because they wanted life. 
they wanted many children. In fact, you were respected and you are held in a, a certain standard when you have children, many children, and maybe even many wives, and you can control that family. So the issue of having one, two children, African people will ask you, what's happening? Mm -hmm. You are supposed to have as many, uh, my mother had eight. Mm -hmm. So, and that is very respectful. You had many children and it brought joy to the family and the children at their own place. It was uh, riches. In fact, for African people, one is not counted rich because you have material. But if you have children, married and children, that's enough, you are rich. For my people, if you add cows, Okay, <laughs> then you are very rich. So the issue of really family and children was paramount and took a center stage. So when we meet our people, maybe in health institutions, and we talk to them about their health, about how to bring up the families, then they appreciate. But... Lecturing in the Catholic University of Eastern Africa and working at the Center for Social Justice and Ethics, where I teach Christian ethics. And the whole institution, all students take Christian ethics. So I meet all students taking law, economics, everything that they have. I meet them. And I find that there are a lot of challenges. There are emerging issues, values, which these students, and even lecturers, young one of them, they find through social media. And for them, it is cool. So through social media, they are introduced to some of the values which are contrary to our African values. And some of the emerging values is what you have shared, LGBTQ. And the position of the church, I understand every person has a dignity. Whether you are LGBTQ or whatever, a human person is created in the image and the likeness of God. But the issue now is what could Jesus do LGBTQ. This is what we discuss with our student. Okay, this is what the practice we find now, and it has been introduced here now in Africa, contrary to our own beliefs. But what could Jesus do? Would he tell you to continue? Okay, continue what you have, or he would challenge. And this is where the position where the students and the, as I go talking to giving seminars and workshops, this is the elephant in the room. Mm. This is the issue that we have to tackle because all agree it is anti-life. If we continue this way, we, we are not even Africans. We don't have uh, that vitality, the value of life, which we find in marriage between a man and a woman. And that is even why, even for African, you hear of what we call 
a woman marrying a woman, mm -hmm. but it is not lesbian. Mm -hmm. It was if a woman does not have children, she gets another woman like surrogate so that this young one, and they get the one if she happens to have had a child, then she can give birth for this lady who did not have children. So a woman marrying a woman in Africa is not lesbian. It is for children. So that the family, there is arrangement, they do proper arrangement according to the African culture. There is a way they do so that this woman will not die without a child, but this other one will bring up children for her. So there are challenges which we meet as religious people, which we meet and encounter in our families. And some of our families, they seem to have no problem, especially uh, those who also go to social media and exposed. It's kind of, you are civilized, you have gone to America, you have gone, as you say, Canada. When you come back, you are like, I know things now. And they tend to introduce these to the families. But all of them, it is issues that we all need to stand and to Thank you so much. And thank you for addressing the, uh, mm. the, the point of the challenges as well. It's just really welcome. Now, Bjorna, we have uh, someone I've met before. <laughs> Good to see you again, Dr. Uh, Dr. Rohome uh, Ngari is, uh, first of all, married and, uh, in 1993 and is blessed with three children. And uh, a darling on two grandchildren, so well in your way. <laughs> he has a, a, been a medical doctor since 1991, specializing in obstetrics, as they say, obstetrics and gynecology since the year 2000. He's the founding director of Mercy Health Services Limited, uh, which owns the Mercy Medical Center. He is a director of the Kenyan Christian Professionals Forum, the chairman of its governance accountability forum, and the immediate former convener of its life committee. Chairman of the Kenyan Catholic Doctors Association, the Commissioner of the Catholic Justice and Peace Department, a member of the Family Board of the Archdiocese of Nairobi, and a member of the Board of various private companies on the boards, uh, mission hospitals, and NGOs. Passionate about Christian engagement as a kingdom in all spheres of influence, especially healthcare, uh, the family, and social economic spheres. Dr. Wahom. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and um, I'm pleased to be in this, uh, in this uh, uh, meeting uh, and the coming together of minds. Um, on the issue of the challenges, um, I've been in the, in the pro-life movement for a bit now, and uh, it gives you a, an opportunity to reflect and uh, what I've seen happen is that um, a solution, a problem is, is, is stated. Um, somebody outside of Africa states what Africa's problem is. Then it tells us how to solve the problem. Uh, and the initial one was um, we are not very well developed. Um, we are struggling with development. And we are told the reason was overpopulation. 
And therefore, the solution was to reduce population. And so there is always uh, somebody who crafts a message and a solution around it. Uh, now we have climate change and um, the, the globe is warming. But what is the cause of the warming and what solutions are being offered? Again, is something that we must look at and question. So I, I feel our greatest challenge is, is language. And I'll give some examples. Uh, for instance, the LGBTQ agenda that has been mentioned. Um, from a medical point of view, if a person comes to my office and says he's a man who is uh, trapped in a woman's body, uh, then from a doctor's perspective, uh, the first thing you realize is this person is not in touch with reality. He's actually delusional. And uh, the idea then is to understand that this delusion is not the diagnosis. It, it is the manifestation. And therefore, what is it that could have made them feel the way they are feeling? Because it is, is not natural. And uh, when that you explore, then you discover that there is issues of uh, post-traumatic stress disorders. And uh, the, the right thing for me to do as a medical doctor is then to refer that person to a counseling psychologist. Uh, it would be criminal for me and totally unethical to affirm that position and even suggest drugs uh, or surgeries that would then affirm the delusion. And, and that is what we find that is lacking from the West. There isn't enough courage to stand for the truth. And I think it is time uh, we, we um, as professionals, said it is enough, and we stop playing games. Uh, the other one is the question of abortion. And uh, we spend a lot of time discussing abortion. Is abortion legal? Is abortion not legal? Is abortion ethical? Is abortion not ethical? Again, we have a problem of language. Because the term abortion on its own just means uh, deliberately bring to an end prematurely. It's just an English word describing that you can end a process prematurely. So you can end a pregnancy prematurely. But does that mean you kill the baby deliberately? So in medical practice, when you terminate a pregnancy before the baby can survive outside of its mother's womb, that is called induced abortion. And induced abortion has always been unethical and criminal. So you remove the term induced, and now we are discussing abortion. Uh, and I think it is time we just clearly state that um, what is the intention of the service provider? If your, uh, your intention is to deliberately kill the unborn child, then of course, whatever you're doing is unethical. Now, there is a very interesting thing that is happening, that you can legalize an immorality, and then in that bill, offer a solution for doctors, and, um, and they, it is called conscientious objection. Now, if you put conscientious objection in a bill, what you're first agreeing is that what you are asking people to do is immoral. There must be something wrong if the conscience will not agree with it. And if you allow me conscientious objection, then you are legalizing that which is immoral. And that in itself uh, makes the, the, the uh, discussion uh, very awkward. Um, so 
it is easier to say what you mean. Um, we want to bring a pregnancy to an end to save the mother and the child. That we understand. And the method we are going to use will give the baby the best chance of survival. But if your intention is to deliberately kill the baby before it's born, whether it is uh, a few weeks old, whether it's nine months old, then that is, uh, is medically unethical and it is a position we should be able to, to, to sustain in discussion. Then the question of, uh, of why would a woman seek an abortion? If, if um, in my profession we've seen women and the way they respond to the knowledge that they are carrying life, and it's, it's a precious thing to see when a mother knows that she's pregnant, when she does a first cut and sees her baby for the first time, for a woman to turn around and actually hate that to a point where she demands that her baby is killed, you must all understand that it is not her who is a problem. She's the only one who knows she's pregnant, and she's the only one who can protect that baby. The question is, how do we respond when she tells us? And that's where the challenge comes. So the, the, the boyfriend says, I'm not interested. That wasn't the plan. Uh, the father of the girl says, you have let me down. Uh, you must leave the home. Uh, she goes to the pastor. The pastor says, you have embarrassed me. You now cannot come to the youth, um, uh, the, the youth uh, uh, functions. And everybody in the community have told her they don't want her baby. And then when she turns around and terminates a pregnancy, we all point fingers and condemn her. So let us go back a little and say, um, when we teach our children about sexuality, what should we teach them? And I think one area that is lacking, uh, that is in the theology of the body, is the spirituality of the sexual act. That if, uh, as Christians, we don't believe in reincarnation, that every child who is conceived is a new soul that has been created by God that didn't exist before, then the act of as uh, coitus, the act of sexual relation, is basically an action of a man who is calling on God to make him a father. So the man is the high priest in this sacrifice. And his life-giving seed is the sacrifice that he gives. And uh, the altar is the woman he has nominated. And uh, when we teach this uh, spirituality of the sexual act, I think it will start helping the boy child to reflect a little differently. And the example I give them is uh, of a maize farmer who went to a very fertile piece of land during the rainy season and scattered some maize, then came back after a month and found the maize had grown. And he immediately started cursing the ground and saying, how could you grow maize? What is wrong with you? You know, this was not the plan. Uh, and I tell them that's how we sound um, when a woman tells us she's pregnant. And we say we are shocked and we are surprised. <laughs> Uh, so it is something to reflect on. So we need to, to address uh, the act of sex uh, from a spiritual perspective to demonstrate why then it needs to be within the, the family. And then we say that if you're not ready to be a father or a mother, then you have a moral responsibility to avoid sexual intercourse. Uh, 
uh, and that would help us deal with that. Then support the mother who is in crisis pregnancy uh, so that she understands, despite where she may have fallen, that the baby is still welcome, and uh, we shall do everything we can to be able to, to help her. Um, so if you look at the opportunity, then the opportunity is about going back to support the family structure. That um, marriage is not just a union between the man and the woman, it involves the greater family. And when there are challenges within the family, then it becomes our business uh, to support that family. Uh, our greatest achievement um, has been the reproductive health policy, the, that is again um, a Kenyan government policy. Um, it was um, initially instituted by the opposition in the hope of um, uh, uh, ingraining their habits into our population. But we managed to get involved and cleaned it up, and it is a very good document. And what they've done is go to court to try and uh, stop its implementation. So we're hoping this government um, uh, will help us to implement this together with the family policy so that we may be able to, to protect the sexuality of our people. Thank you very much. Now I turn to the other side of the table where we have Alice Mchiri. Um, I'd ask the same question, maybe if, if you'd have an introduction of your experience and your work in the area, and then addressing the idea of the, the, the greatest challenge that you see, and then the, the hopeful opportunity that is also there. Um, Alice is the head of the Secretariat Catholic Members of Parliament Spiritual Support Initiative, and she's the coordinator as well uh, at the International Catholic Legislators Network, ICLN of the Africa chapter of that group. And uh, also, um, Alice is active in the Catholic Women's Association of the Archdiocese of Nairobi. So I'll pass this over to you, Alice. Thank you, uh, LifeSite News, and uh, also the other panelists and our guests here. For me, working with the uh, Catholic politicians for the last 12 years has made me realize just the kind of potential we have if we have our own Christians and Catholics, especially in places of power and where they can influence policy. We have had many, many challenges, but I want to say that we have had wins because of having our own Catholics in these places of power. And of course, with the support that we've gotten, especially from the Christian professionals, and forming unity of uh, people of faith. It's very, very difficult for politicians to work on their own because particularly currently, the manipulation and the arm twisting from the globalists, from the radical feminist groups, and our fallback has been particularly the Kenya Conference of Catholic Bishops and the people of faith. And in Africa, especially in Kenya, I would confidently say that we can still and we are still relying on the voice of the bishops because we look up to them and when nobody is listening to us, the bishops speak from the pulpit and the world and the country listens. We have an incident and a big win that we had in 2019. We had the Health Reproductive Bill 2019. And by God's grace, we call it so, 
We won it because the bishops spoke from the pulpit, from the cathedral. Nobody was going to church, but all the Catholics were watching, and other Christians and other people of faith were watching what was happening at the, Basil at the Holy Family Basilica. What the politicians were talking, it was a heavy issue, and they had to withdraw it because of collaboration, our collaboration with the bishops. However, we need to foster a stronger unity amongst all people of faith. We cannot win this battle as Catholics alone or just Christians alone. We have won battles in the in the past because the Muslims are with us, the Hindus are with us, the Protestants, the Evangelicals. This is very, very important. And for the Catholic legislators, first the Africans, on the issues we are speaking about, abortion, LGBTQI, in Africa, they were unheard of. And our politicians are first Africans, then they became Christians, they have a constitution to defend. And if they are equipped well with information, they will defend it and we shall win this war. And if we go back to the voice of our bishops, they are vocal, they are strong, and the Catholic bishops, I would say, are the single most respected voice of religious leaders in this country. But do they have enough information? Are we supporting them enough to be able to speak without contradicting themselves? We do not have reliable media that would cover what the bishops say as they would cover any other scandal, especially if it touches on the church. We need our own media, whether it's social media, where we can reach majority of Christians and even the non-Christians and the non-Catholics, because for the respect that we have of our bishops, they become our fallback. For instance, right now we have a family protection bill. We are still going back to our bishops to tell them from the pulpit so that they blocked can be unlocked and we can flow over parliament so that we pass it in the morning or the politicians can uh, pass it in the morning we need to capitalize on this authority that is really really respected by all people of faith and even the non-believers respect the Catholic bishops and when they speak things move mm -hmm. and we also need the professionals really the bishops and our Catholic politicians a lot of support and a lot of information. We do not want to get where the rest is, but without information, we shall get there. Without information on the of LGBTQI, and the reality that, like Dr. Ahome is saying, that, that a baby in, the, in a woman's womb is a preborn human being. So information we need, particularly to the West, then we need examples that we can learn from where people are trying, in the U.S. they have more than 700 laws. They're trying to reverse what they did in the, uh, more than 50 years ago. Out of those, 70 have passed in the positive, but the damage is very, very difficult to repair. So the biggest challenge we have, one, is media coverage. The second is lack of information. The third is technology, because that is what is feeding our children, and we also need a lot of support for our politicians. And when we go for election, we keep saying, do we know the values and the virtues of the political leaders that we put in place?
because if they do not have values and virtues, they will go to the side of the globalists. If they, are, they have no Christian values, if they do not have African uh, cultural values, we do not expect them to protect any of the values that we are uh, propagating. Our Catholic MP spiritual support initiative was initiated. The first idea came uh, into our minds in 2008. And we found a reason to come together as Christian leaders. The first there was a pro-abortion bill in the April of 2008. We didn't go far because we were all denominations, uh, Christian denominations together until those that later became the founders of our Catholic and uh, spiritual support initiative realized that we could do better if we started with a Catholic initiative. And we came together again in 2012, 2013 there was another attempt, 2014 there was an attempt, 2016 there was an attempt, 2019 was the, the peak of it because of the ICPD conference. And you see, because of that initiative, we are able to detect what is uh, coming through the policy. We are able to collaborate with the Christian professionals and the church leaders, including non-Catholic and non-Muslims. So it is important that we have such groupings, particularly in the ministries. In parliament, we are there. But we cannot win alone. We can only win if we have collaboration with the professionals outside and the church leaders. So we need our own media. We have captain here, we thank God. But uh, we need even to employ and engage our youth to be on the social media because the youth of this country do not even watch news. By the time news are being aired, they, have, they know what every media house will air because they have been on the social media throughout the day. So why don't we go to their playground and communicate there because they are the targets of the, the globalists, the, the radical feminists, and those who want to destroy our families and those who are propagating the culture of death. That is what I have to say for now. I will now turn to the advocate in the room. Charles Kanjama is an advocate of the High Court of Kenya, and uh, he's a partner, a founding partner of Uma and Kanjama advocates. Uh, he's uh, practiced in many areas of law. The list has about 10 or 12 areas here. And, uh, also is a, is a frequent contributor, uh, writing extensively on many aspects of civil procedure, environmental law, comparative constitutional law, international institutions and property, including intellectual property, legal ethics and jurisprudence, public digest on matrimonial property law, constitutional law, and tax law, and is a regular columnist in the standard history. Are there any areas of law that you're not comfortable with? <laughs> um, also, as a member of the Strathmore Education Trust, so there's a impact to Strathmore. Uh, Charles is a council member of the Law Society of Kenya, and a convener of its constitution, implementation, and law reform committee. So we are very pleased to have you in our midst, and we would like to hear your thoughts. Uh, thank you very much. I was a convener of the constitutional implementation committee some years back when I was in the law society. Uh, subsequently, I became the chair of the Nairobi branch of the law society. And uh, around that time, we founded uh, Kenya Christian Professionals Forum. 
So Kenya Christian Professionals Forum is an ecumenical organization. Uh, we have uh, Catholics there. We have uh, Protestants there. We have uh, Evangelicals there. So all Christian. I meant that you're, you're currently the chair, is that right, of the KCPA? Yes, yes. yes. So, so all Christians are there. Uh, and and um, we come from diverse professional groups. And uh, what brought us together was in 2010, when Kenya was in the process of coming up with a new constitution, in a constitutional uh, process of formulation of a new constitution. And uh, the professionals felt that uh, the church leaders would benefit from technical assistance from professionals would assist in advising them on areas that are within our professional competence. We're involved in training of trainers, uh, those who would go to the ground to talk to the people on the grassroots. So for the last 13 years, since uh, 2010, uh, we have come together, we've been engaging. We focus on areas of life, uh, of family, and of faith. Uh, we also focus on good governance and values-based education. One of the things that uh, we noted is that advocacy requires you to keep engaging and not giving up. And uh, to recognize that uh, advocacy doesn't mean that you have uh, the most amount of money available. There's a lot of money that is coming from the West. Uh, there's a lot of uh, strong lobby groups that are trying to convert uh, the African culture into a mirror image of Western society. Uh, early this year, we had a meeting in uh, Entebbe, Uganda. And uh, in that meeting, there were uh, MPs from several countries in Africa and were discussing how can Africa protect its culture and its family values. And at the end of that meeting, we were uh, happy to have a session with the president of Uganda. And uh, when we spoke to him about what we had been doing, it was a courtesy call. Uh, he narrated for us that, according to him, uh, Africa has undergone three cycles of uh, being dominated mm -hmm. uh, by the West. Mm -hmm. And he says the uh, first was colonialism. Mm -hmm. uh, that domination involved taking uh, land and freedom of the people of Africa. And of course, apart from taking land and freedom, the Africans also got something in return, uh, which uh, we don't mind. We were happy we got certain things, including... Christian religion came at the time, but uh, we fought to uh, get rid of the yoke of colonialism successfully. And then he said that the second wave was the wave of neocolonialism, which involved certain international, uh, you could call them unjust structures of trade and relationships, that uh, while the African countries were free in theory, uh, in practice they were still very dominated uh, by uh, Western uh, trade and Western structures that had been put in place before. And we were sucked into the Cold War. Uh, the African countries tried to resist that and say we want to be part of the non-aligned movement. Uh, but nonetheless, we found ourselves uh, quite dominated uh, in that situation. And even such, some of our instabilities internal uh, were occasionally fomented or supported by Western powers, like the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in, in Congo. Uh, these are things that have been studied. And then Museveni said that we have now the third wave 
of domination and this domination is a is an attempt at cultural domination and and it seems that uh, those in in some of the western countries uh, cannot sleep in peace until our african and moral cultural values are dismantled to the extent that they are different from theirs uh, the other day i met a diplomat from the united states who was telling me that uh, for america the question of uh, homosexual rights because that's what they call them is very important to them and i reminded him that they become important when they depending on whether it's the democrats or the republicans in power and and he told me no you know the american situation has really changed right now and and i told him that uh, the difference in my view is that when the democrats in power they put so much effort in persuading the rest of the world to embrace their values uh, they they call a big part of western europe is already quite liberal like the scandinavian countries and it becomes difficult for us here to just operate the way we want to operate because of the pressure that is being put on us it is now being brought even with a trade international trade treaties and instruments uh, like recently the nations of africa have been uh, negotiating and have finished negotiating a treaty with the european union uh, that is uh, the post cotonou agreement uh, this uh, agreement the european union countries they want to put their human rights language which is basically supporting what they consider their values and to us those are anti values because it's an anti values against life uh, the issue of abortion it is against the fundamental uh, right to life there are values of i don't know supporting they call them sexual minorities but they are anti values because they are against the family which is a basic unit of society and so on so they put that language there saying that even if you want to to trade you want to have access to trade opportunities you must uh, accept these rights that we accept in our countries the european court of human rights might have an opportunity to interpret whether an african country is violating the values of the european union under this treaty so we find when the americans and the europeans come together to push that uh, agenda and ideology of theirs here we are suffocating and and our presidents in africa have repeated time and again uh, we respect other countries we know you have different uh, principles in the way you govern yourself we accept several principles like rule of law justice equality but we also have our values and you need to respect our values so that has been a key challenge here in africa that uh, the western nations uh, are not ready to let us continue with our cultural and moral values so for me i think the biggest uh, challenge or threat to our cultural and moral values in matters of life in matters of family even our respect for the faith i think the biggest threat is the threat of ideas it's a philosophical battle the culture war has several elements and i think the philosophical one is critical in the west the philosophical battle was lost during the time of the wolfenden a report in the united kingdom in 1957 the devlin hart debate that we studied in law schools of 1960 to 62 they lost the battle at that time in in america they lost the battle when 
they came up with the Supreme Court decisions uh, overturning their uh, rules against uh, uh, homosexual conduct, like Lawrence versus Texas is 1984. So they lost those battles. But what we have found out, uh, those of us who are at the front lines, is that the arguments that were used in the 1950s and 60s in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in the 1970s and 80s in America, based on modern sociology, modern uh, biology, medicine, those arguments that they used to foist these ideas that are anti-values on their people have now been proven false. The, the idea of John Stuart Mill that what two people do in a bedroom by themselves doesn't affect anyone. As the statistics have been shown on the screen by uh, John Henry, that 1% has become 20%. It shows you what two people do in a bedroom by themselves if the state doesn't get involved in the matter occasionally can affect the whole country. In, in Kenya, in Africa, we have this uh, saying about uh, this analogy of an elephant that uh, uh, it was raining quite heavily. There was a storm and the elephant approached a man who was in a hut and it, it knocked with its trunk on the door of the hut and the man peeped from the window and the elephant uh, pleaded with the man that he just wanted to shelter its trunk from the rainstorm. And of course, the, the man, after thinking about it, he allowed the trunk of the elephant a bit of access. He opened the door a bit, it got a bit of access. And after a bit of time, the elephant said it also wanted to shelter its ears because its ears were also suffering the beating of the thunderstorms and so on. And uh, sooner than later, the head of the elephant was inside the hut. And the elephant also needed to shelter its, its legs. It needed to... Uh, it needed to shelter its its legs, then its tail. And before the man knew it, the elephant was in the hut. But the hut could not uh, both contain the elephant and the man who was sheltering in. So the man found himself thrown off his own hut through the window, and the elephant had taken possession of the hut. And, and I think what we have seen is that uh, these uh, philosophies come in a very attractive way. It won't hurt if you just allow me to shelter my trunk in there. Mm -hmm. And that is why on the, in the battle, the pro-life battle, the question is, but a, a, a baby, not even a baby, they use the word zygote or fetus or embryo, with just a few cells, it doesn't even have ears. Are you going to say that you cannot terminate that one? Why don't you maybe put a, a barrier when you reach the second or third trimester, but you can allow before it gets a heartbeat. And the moment the trunk gets in, it's inevitable that you allow the whole elephant inside the heart. And so there is no apparent barrier uh, to, to, to wage the pro-life battle the moment you concede that any unborn person in the womb does not have the right to life from conception. The moment you, you move the, the point from conception to any other place in the nine months, you've lost the battle because you've lost it at the philosophical level. You've lost it at the level of ideas. The, less, the rest is just practical implementation. And it seems the same thing in the area of family. 
the moment we depart from the reasoning of this famous uh, English case called Show versus DPP, it was a 1962 decision of the House of Lords, that the state or society has a right to protect public morals from corruption. The moment you concede that, no, in fact, you should allow a bit of LGBT here and there, it is inevitable. It's, it's, you could call it the slippery slope argument, but we've seen the slippery slope. We've seen the people going down the slippery slope until they get into the water. So uh, here in Africa, that threat of the West is, first of all, a battle of ideas. In the old days, we had uh, taboos. We had uh, even stigma. We, we had uh, mechanisms within African culture to alienate or put on the sideline those who engaged in behavior that was harmful to the uh, public good. But we're in an information age, like one of my panelists has said, in which it's not enough to just rely on feelings. We need to have scientific and evidence-based arguments for why these things uh, are not going to work, why they are wrong. Finally, let me conclude by saying as uh, Kenya Christian Professionals Forum, we've started publishing a State of Life, Family, and Faith report. We did a second edition this year because we said that uh, we need to study what are the threats to life. Abortion is one, but there are others. What can we do about them? Are our interventions working? What is the state of the family, the African family? It is also wounded. It is suffering from quite a bit of bruising. And what is the state of faith? And uh, we are convinced that if we battle at the level of philosophical ideas uh, to ensure that we have the right values, and then also at the level of practice to ensure that people implementing the right ideas, because there's a lot of grassroots interference uh, by people bringing in money to turn them into other lifestyles, then we, we may be uh, headed in the right direction. We may serve as a bulwark against those uh, negative influences that are coming from the West and then help the West to recover its soul. Because that soul uh, came to us, part of it through Christianity, through the West, but the West lost its soul. It needs to find its soul here in the soil of Africa. Amen. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Charles. And now I know where the expression, the elephant in the room, comes from. <laughs> Inconvenient truths and such. Um, well, to conclude our, our go-around of the uh, expert panel, we are delighted to have Mrs. Anne Kyoko with us. Um, Anne is the director of Citizen Go. She's a Catholic pro-life activist. She's been active in organizing and supporting uh, pro-life causes, including fundraising and network building. Um, and, uh, you know, for the family, for life, for the embrace of that which is should be obvious but is becoming challenged increasingly. Um, we have in our midst uh, another warrior, and uh, she's a very pretty warrior, and we thank her for being here today. Um, and uh, maybe I can, as a former diplomat, I was struck by also the fact that you have a master's in diplomacy at University of Nairobi. So maybe we can exchange notes on that as well. <laughs> so over to you, Anne. Yeah, maybe you can exchange notes. Thank you so much. I'm currently pursuing my master's degree. I'm almost finishing. My thesis was on um, 
uh, the state of uh, health in Africa mm. with that particular uh, study in Kenya, with the, the case study of Kenya. So oh, it has wonderful. been quite an interesting study for me. I just published it, mm -hmm. and the results are quite interesting because I realize there's a lot of money that comes to the health sector in Africa, mm -hmm. in Kenya, yeah. and it all gets lost mm -hmm. in other areas in other, the focus has been um different so uh maybe i can share my personal story i i i joined the pro-life activism when i was a teenager and this is after let me say after high school my uncle shared with me that uh i was a crisis pregnancy myself my mom had had joined um um christian vocation and she got pregnant when she was four years down the line and so it was really quite difficult for her. And I will share, I'll spare the details for later, but then uh, it was quite difficult for my mom. So I learned uh, this when I was just a teenager, when I was joining the University of Nairobi. And this story was quite um, personal for me. And when, once I joined the University of Nairobi, I realized there were several uh, clubs, there were several societies, and there was a pro-life movement in the University of Nairobi, and I joined that one. But then the battles were just small, uh, just um, some NGOs sneaking leaflets under the uh, rooms telling us to start using contraception. That is in the university. And so uh, our battles were just saying, no, don't sneak these uh, leaflets. We could go and collect those leaflets and throw them in the dustbin. <laughs> yeah, those small, small battles. But then once I finish um, my first degree, I joined the professional world, and I realized that uh, there's a lot to be done and somebody has to do it. And um, I, I decided to join the pro-life uh, pro uh, battle. And um, I grew up in the village in, uh, in Yahururu. And this place has a lot that it needs. There, there are no roads, electricity. I just uh, connected electricity for my parents recently. And water has fluorine. There's no water for, uh, there's no tap waters. And women go very far to get um, health uh, uh, facilities, the hospitals, once they, they get pregnant, they have to travel very far to get uh, uh, these kind of services. And I happened to travel uh, to the United States when I was, um, uh, I think sometimes in 2013. And once I traveled there, I realized that uh, there was quite a lot that was happening there. Uh, there was a push for, um, abortion for LGBT, for comprehensive sexual education. And once I returned here, I, I, started, I started, I gained an interest. I started studying what is happening in uh, different uh, areas in the, in the Kenyan society. And I realized that um, in some, sometimes in 2017, an organization called UNESCO, uh, together with um, other NGOs, they had um, uh, organized so that uh, a curriculum called What Starts With Me. And this uh, curriculum was teaching comprehensive sexuality education. And this uh, uh, curriculum uh, was teaching um, abortion, uh, uh, sex as a right, um, LGBT issues, uh, masturbation to five years old. And it had penetrated to 50 schools. And we had evidence of the list of the schools. So that was my first ever battle. And we had to uh, um, do a petition to the Ministry of Education uh, for this to be stopped. And then later, we realized that uh, there was an international organization that was pushing or actually advertising abortion 
as, as if they were advertising candy, as if they were advertising biscuits, you know? You just come have abortion, it's 5,000 shillings. That is $50. And we had to uh, stop it. And right now we are in court. I won't speak much because my lawyer is here, actually. <laughs> we are in court because of that organization. And um, so we realized there's a concert, concerted agenda, a very synchronized, very well-planned agenda to turn Africa into what um, uh, the West is right now. Population control being the top of the agenda. And the organizations that are doing this are the same. If you go to Kenya, like uh, Ali said, there was, an, uh, there was a bill uh, that had to do with uh, SRHR, that is abortion rights, CSE, and LGBT. The same kind of a bill, the, co the same content. We went to Malawi, we found the same kind of content. We went to Namibia, you will find the same kind of content. You went to uh, the East African Legislative Assembly. It's the same kind of content. And who are the, who are the sponsors? The same people. IPAS, the Swedish uh, government, the Canadian government, I'm sorry. The no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the United States government. Uh, but when uh, President Trump was there, it was a bit better. But whenever we have those uh, Democrats, always money has to come for this agenda. So there's this um, uh, very well-organized agenda. There are these people, the players who are doing this uh, day in, day out, and somebody has to stop them. So this has been my daily work to <laughs> expose them and to educate uh, people. Because really, uh, I, I think there was a study that was done by Kenya Christian Professionals Forum in, together with the Sinovit um, uh, uh, Research Firm. And they found that 80% of Kenyans are against abortion. And over 88% of Kenyans are against homosexuality. So we are like, who are these people pushing this agenda for? When you go to the grassroots, they'll tell you they don't want, they, they don't want abortion. Actually, like a sister said, children are a blessing to them. Why are we pushing for abortion? Who are we benefiting? You know, who are we? Uh, benefiting when we push for LGBT agenda? Why are we sexualizing children? Who are we benefiting? Why not push for the uh, priorities that Africans need? You know? And um, you will find that uh, even when you go down to the grassroots in Africa, in the villages, they don't even know what uh, you know, LGBT stands for. But once you go to parliament, you'll find a member of parliament standing and saying, this is what Africa needs. But this member of parliament, not all of them, the compromised ones, the ones who have gone and sat down with these sponsors, the ones who have gone and sat, uh, been given money, the dirty money, the mammon, and they'll come to push for this agenda on us. And that's why maybe we have been able to win against this, uh, like uh, Ali said, in parliament. And, and um, besides parliament, there are, there are those who are going to the ministries. You know, and they sit with uh, the corrupt people, or maybe people who don't know actually what is in the language of this. You know, when you come to the ministry and you tell them, you know, we are pushing for SRHR, and they don't know what this is about. It's a very good language, uh, uh, word. It's very good language. Euphemism is very much used when they are pushing for this agenda. They don't quite understand. So uh, what, what we are doing is to expose the language that is being used by these people, what is CSE? What is SRHR? What is LGBT? What is this transgenderism we are pushing? And um, somehow we are gaining uh, uh, attraction, and maybe sometimes we lose, but somebody has to do something. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I think I'll hand it back to you.
Congressman Henry. On behalf of LifeSite News and our very many supporters, um, I want to thank uh, Strathmore and uh, you, Raymond, for uh, allowing us to host here the first Africa Life Forum. I think it's, uh, it's beautiful to be able to see the fighters, the fighters in this room, fighters for humanity, because in a very real way, you're the last man standing. And it's a great weight on your shoulders, but it's a, the weight of the cross of Christ. And we are here to do everything we can to support you in being that holder of Christ's truth for the whole wide world right now. And I hope and pray that, Charles, you are right, that the rest of the world will find their soul here in the African soil so that we might go back to our own lands and once again teach the truth of Christ. This is the only way, not only to eternal salvation, which we all know it is, but it's also the only way to human flourishing. It's the only way to get to a place where life is valued and the family is what it really is, the building block of all society. So I want to thank you all for participating. I want to thank you all for watching. May God bless you. And as we always say at LifeSite, we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.